I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. the music of my guest today on the program, Magic Dick. Let me tell you a little bit about Magic Dick. Before he became known as Magic Dick and his licking stick, the Connecticut-born Richard Solowitz grew up thinking that he'd become not a musician, but a scientist or a painter some days, and then back to a scientist. You know how when you're younger, you vacillate. He grew up playing music, but It was not the harmonica, which he later became famous for, that he was playing as a kid. The young Solowitz played trumpet and saxophone and wouldn't pick up a harmonica until he got to college. But I won't tell that story. I'll let him tell you. When he was in college, I'll tell you this much, he went to Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And it was there that he met two musicians, Danny Klein and the guitar player John J. Giles. The three of them formed the Jay Giles Band in 1965, and for the next 15 years, the band's mix of hard rock and blues made them one of the most irresistible and electric live bands on the planet. If you want to get an idea of just how potent the Jay Giles Band were as a live act, look no further than the Full House album. It is truly one of the greatest documents of a band that was truly in their prime, and in front of a live audience truly in their element. On that very same album, Magic Dick's performance of the instrumental groove Whammer Jammer is perhaps one of the greatest moments in live album history. You gotta check it out. Dave Marsh in the Rolling Stone Record Guide said, Magic Dick is by far the best white man to ever play blues harmonica. Now, this is all before the Jay Giles Band came to public consciousness thanks to MTV. Everything for this band changed around 1981. And it all changed thanks to a little album called Freeze Frame. Now, Freeze Frame hit the shelves around the same time that MTV hit the airwaves. It was a great album, no argument there at all. But it was a great album that benefited from some rather perfect timing. Thanks to MTV, the Jay Giles band, who'd been at it for close to 20 years, were suddenly on the screens in everyone's home across America. Thankfully, they were photogenic, because as we all know, 
<laughs> MTV destroyed someone like Christopher Cross, who wasn't very photogenic, and people went, oh, that's Christopher Cross? Ah, I think uh, that's a surprising look. I wasn't expecting him to be that guy. Well, the Jay Giles band, they were very charismatic, handsome guys. And as a result, MTV embraced them, and very wisely, the Jay Giles band embraced them right back. How big of a record was Freeze Frame? Well, it was number one on the Billboard charts. That we know. But consider this. It hung around those charts for an astounding 70 weeks. The album spawned three pretty huge singles. Centerfold was a number one hit, Freeze Frame was top five, and Angel in Blue top 20. It was their 10th album. These guys were probably in their early 40s, late 30s. But remarkably, their videos were sandwiched between such fresh-faced bands as Duran Duran, Kajagoogoo, and A Flock of Seagulls, and nobody batted an eye. In other words, the Jay Giles band were accepted, and they were pretty huge. They put one more record out, and that was it. By 1984, the Jay Giles Band had called it a day. Sure, over the next 30 years, the band got together for some subsequent reunion shows, but you know what? The Jay Giles Band never recorded another album ever again. That was it. In the early 90s, Magic Dick and Jay Giles teamed up in a band called Blues Time. They put two albums out on Rounder, and they toured by themselves and with B.B. King's Blues Fest. They were an act that were very formidable and very well-respected as a live unit. And, like any master of their craft, Magic Dick, predictably, stayed busy. He collaborated with everyone from Patti Smythe to Debbie Harry to the Del Fuegos to Ryuchi Sakamoto. So you would think that our story ends there. After all, Magic Dick had a resume that most musicians would kill for. He had played in a band, they were wildly successful, he was internationally recognized, and he was considered to be perhaps one of the greatest living practitioners of his instrument. Why do anything else? Well, because Magic Dick is an artist, and an artist continues to always challenge themselves. A meeting with the guitar prodigy Shun Ng changed Magic Dick's life. The Chicago-born musician who was raised in Singapore is one of those rare musical talents that kind of shows up out of nowhere Every 20 or 30 years, if we're lucky, Shun Ng is one of those guys. He is not even 30, and he's already a master of the guitar. He is truly one of the most astounding players I've ever seen. He can sing, he can play, and he's also a handsome guy. It's enough to put you in a jealous rage, but Shun Ng is so incredible and so charismatic, you cannot help but love this guy. Well, Shun Ng and Magic Dick met each other, a story I'll let Magic tell. But after they met, they decided to put together an acoustic duo, which actually goes back to the roots of the Jay Giles Band, who started off as an acoustic combo. Shun Ng and Magic Dick playing together is pure, I know, I know, it's easy, but it's pure magic. Yes, I went there, but you would have too. Now, back to our story. Two talented musicians team up. That's happened in the past, of course. But here's the cool thing that happened in this partnership. Magic Dick felt challenged artistically and revitalized. It's almost like he completely rebooted, and he realized that he had a lot to say on the harmonica that he hadn't said already. As a matter of fact, he tells me that he feels he's at the height 
of his creative powers. Their partnership has already yielded one album called About Time, and I recommend you get it. It is unlike anything you've ever heard. These two guys are meant to play together. I'm so happy they found each other. I've wanted to talk to Magic Tick for a long time because he's a curious figure. Think about the MTV age. Think about all those videos, the ones I mentioned. Think about Duran Duran's Rio. Think about Kajagoogoo's Too Shy. Think about Boy George. Think about A Flock of Seagulls. Think about The Fix. Then think about the Jay Giles Band. It's weird. I mean, Peter Wolf was probably at least 10 or 15 years older than Simon Le Bon. All those guys were. So that's a curious thing. Even more curious, think about this. You might feel you know the 80s really well, and you probably do. Name another harmonica player on MTV. Name a harmonica player that was, you know, seen all the time on that channel. You can only name one, and it's Magic Dick. Amidst all those great bands that had those splishy drums and those synthesizers and that 80s production, well, Magic Dick and the Jay Giles Band were kind of hanging out in between all that stuff, playing bluesy rock and roll that sort of morphed into a kind of, I don't know, soulful new wave. And Magic Dick was a harmonica player on MTV when MTV was on all the time. A pretty cool feat. If you think about it. Uh, all right, look, here's my chat with Magic Dick. He was great, very genial, very smart, very nice, very open, and you know what? Very inspiring. I think you're going to enjoy this one. This is my chat with Magic Dick. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Magic Dick and Shunning is a duo. And in fact, we are an acoustic duo. And the reason we are a duo is by choice, because we are both musical minimalists. Uh, I don't think I have to spell what that means, you know, for you, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we, we believe that um, for what gets off, uh, what gets us off the most, is um, small groups, you know, or even solo artists, solo artists, duos, small groups. And I think both Shun and I are are, uh, are interested in, you know, chamber music, classic jazz, pop, soul, R&B, but not in the context of like huge orchestras or huge bands. You know, there's been lots of great stuff done in that way, but what Shun and I like to explore is what the two of us can do with just two instruments and two voices. So Shun is, you know, being the guitarist and um, the very great singer and soulful person that he is, uh, he is the, he provides the complete foundation for what the two of us do uh, working together. You know, and it wouldn't be right to say, well, Shun provides the backdrop for the harp. You know, for me, that's not really what's going on here. It, it's like we we both work off each other, the chemistry of each other spontaneously in the moment. And although we have arrangements and we have a plan uh, with what we do, it is completely open to spontaneousness, uh, which we love. You know, at any moment, something could happen. She could break a string. So somebody could make a mistake. And before you know it, you have to turn on a dime. And, and quite possibly, 
you would be uh, doing something that we've never played before. You know, it just goes off on a tangent. And um, that's very exciting for us to do. Is that as thrilling as it is terrifying? <laughs> Interesting you ask that, because I was probably going to go there with it. It's very terrifying for me. Not so much for Shun. Shun is a musical genius, in my opinion. And um, his his approach to the guitar is so large and comprehensive, both in both in his taste and his technique. And he's constantly working on his technique, um, and you know, saturating himself with all kinds of music. And I do that too. And we work, you know, we work together great that way because Sean will turn me on to something new. I'll turn him on to something new. There's a great disparity in our ages, and yet Shun is like a Shun is like an old soul. He's like way beyond his 27 years, um, musically speaking. Shun goes way back in terms of what he listens to, you know, um, which makes me very happy because I feel that so much great music has been played before this moment that people should really pay attention to and grow from, you know, and work from. So we pay a lot of attention to our roots. We're constantly exploring our roots and then using those roots to create new music. We're very interested in doing stuff that people haven't played before. And uh, we like to defy expectations. What is the, um, there's a lot of covers, but what is the songwriting process like with him? Have you guys, in terms of collaboration from a writing perspective? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, we did an original tune called Space. It's an instrumental. And uh, Shun, who has studied um, composition, writing, we took this opportunity to, or he, I should say, he took this opportunity to sort of demonstrate to me how we would proceed, you know, to write something. And I'm giving you an example taken from the reality of the, of the thing. In this particular instance, Shun asked me to, he said, just play something. And this was very, this was early on in our, in our um, exposing each other to what we're into and how we play and all this. And um, I was kind of timid with Shun at first for quite some time because you know, I didn't want him to think that I suck because <laughs> Shun is so awesome, <laughs> you know, that that uh, I was kind of like uh, afraid to just really dive in. You know? But I did. And uh, so he asked me to play something. I played a, a simple phrase of just, Bam, boom, ba, da. Um, I have not warmed up my voice today, so, so please, please forgive my not sounding very good on that, <laughs> um, that phrase I just sang, but I'm trying to give you an idea here that just, just a simple three note, um, a three note phrase like that served as the springboard to write the entire piece. And um, so Shun and I worked on, on these various approaches that he had studied uh, in composition. And that was like a, 
a bit of a new experience for me to work just one-on-one on that level, you know, in that particular way. It was very nice, very exciting. Still is, and it's a very challenging piece to play. I'm still, I'm still trying to master what we came up with in space. Who does he remind you of as a player? Because he's he's so gifted that I was trying to describe him to a friend of mine, and I I kind of couldn't. And so for you, yeah. you know, how would you? Who does he remind you of, and how would you describe him as a player? I have the perfect answer for you. Um, and this is the truth. When I first heard Sean, I thought of Robert Johnson. Not because he sounded like Robert Johnson or was doing Robert Johnson material, but because of the minimalistic approach that he was taking um, and also where he was covering, he was playing bass lines, rhythm, and lead all at once with his fingerstyle approach. And that's kind of what Robert Johnson did too. So I think of Robert Johnson when I think of Shun and Robert Johnson is a big influence on Shun. Shun will name Robert Johnson as, you know, someone who means a lot to him about what the possibilities are. Robert Johnson was mind blowing in in his songwriting and his playing and his singing, you know, he just cast the spell. And um, he's the he's the one that Shun reminds me of for those reasons. It's interesting. I, I think it's a pretty I think it's a pretty good comparison to make um, because Shun only uses his acoustic guitar, and sometimes he'll he'll. Uh, tap on it or pound on it, you know, like treat it a bit like a drum, um, you know, with, with rhythmic punctuations. Uh, he makes the most of everything that he can do with what's available to him in the moment. He is That's why he's so outstanding. Yeah. He's incredible because, you know, he's, he can, compl- he's an amazing player. He sings beautifully and he's handsome. That's annoying. He, he, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he's a very handsome man yeah like what what can he not do i mean he's i, I he's yeah. one of those guys you can't take your eyes off him he's one of those musicians and artists that he's electrifying even when he's just standing there that's right yeah when i first met Sean uh, at his manager's office uh at my request um after not very long he he asked me, uh, hey, can we play Whammer Jam right there in, in his manager's office? <laughs> and I said, okay, let's give it a shot. And Shun proceeds to, uh, you know, so I started it off, and Shun proceeds to play something that I had no idea what he was doing. It was not what I was expecting at all. You know, I thought he was going to play, uh, you know, a one-guitar version of what Whammer Jammer is. Well, he did proceed to do that, but what he did was he completely reharmonized the song behind me playing the melody. I didn't know he was going to do that. It really kind of like, I had no idea what was happening, what he was doing. And I didn't know at the moment whether, well, I didn't even know what I thought of it. You know, I was just trying to, okay, let's just get through this, you know, because he obviously had something in mind. And I think Shin wanted to make quite an impression on me. And uh, 
And he did. Was there was there a part of you that went, well, I don't think you need me. You seem like you're fine. No. Because when I first heard Shun, uh, when I first time I heard him was some YouTube stuff. It was an old YouTube thing he did when he was 16 of uh, Billy Jean. It was a cover of Billy Jean. And um, there's several versions on YouTube by Shun of the Billy Jean thing. But it was through the YouTube stuff that I that I first um, heard Sean. This was before meeting him. And I learned of him from a, an email blast from his manager, whom I'm old friends with. So I decided to check out these links that his manager had provided on this email blast. And, uh, and that's when, also when I became aware that, that Sean had a solo uh, album out. So I got... I got his album, listened to that, listened to all the YouTube stuff of him that I could find. As I said, this was before meeting him. But it was, um, when I heard his, when I heard his uh, CD called Funky Thumb Stuff, I knew then that there was a manifest collaboration just waiting right there. Because when I, when I heard Shun play uh, on his recording, I heard a lot of space in his approach to music. And my ear, as I'm listening to it, my ear was filling in harp, harp lines. Ah. You know, I could hear this. I could hear all this working with Sean very effectively just in my mind. And so as a result of that, I, uh, I asked his manager to please arrange a meeting for us. So... I forgot what question I was answering for you. But. No, you answered because you, I, I was asking if you if you kind of felt like, well, that guy doesn't need me. But I like hearing that you that you were listening and you could hear the in those spaces where you could step in and and uh, add some. That's just such a cool way of answering that. And I I wonder if he did. Th- does this partnership did it sort of uh, reignite you creatively in a totally different way? Absolutely. I was I was deliberately looking for. Uh, something very challenging and different to do. I did not want to do another band. Given what I've been through with the band thing, and I, I won't elaborate on that at this moment, but given what I've been through with the band thing, I just knew that for what I'm really interested in doing musically right now, a duo would be the thing to do. A duo with a very challenging player like Sean. And I had never heard anyone Shun um, before that, so it was it was hearing Shun before meeting him that triggered this in my mind that I knew that this had to happen. And I, uh, when I heard Shun's CD, I turned to my wife and I said, "Susan, you mark my words, Shun is going to be here. We're going to be working together. I just know it." And uh, and here we are. When you were, and we don't have to get into it, but when you were doing the band thing, did, in your heart, did you always wish that you were do, doing something a little simpler, a little more stripped back than what you're doing right now? At the time, I don't think so, because, you know, at the time that the Jay Giles band was fully functioning, um, that was a huge creative outlet for me and a, and a rather clearly defined role in a larger group context. And... Um, I loved what we were doing. Um, 
you know, there was a very creative endeavor on everybody's part to incorporate the harp the way we did. But, you know, sometimes things run a course. And um, without getting into the whole history with the Giles Band, you know, we basically disbanded in, uh, in uh, 1984 and uh, reformed in um, 1999, 2000 to do a reunion tour. And we've done a bunch of those um, since that time. Um, but we hadn't really created any new music. And I felt that I never felt really completely creatively fulfilled uh, in the Giles Band. Because, you know, I was, I was a, yes, a featured soloist, you know, in a, in a very funky context, you know, with great, with great parts written to, uh, you know, accompany harp solos that I play. You know, the various, the various grooves that we put together to go behind those harp solos or the way the harp was incorporated into the total arrangement of the songs. So it wasn't just that this song had solo. You know, we always used the harp uh, as an integral part of the band. You know, it was actually a defining sound element of, of the band. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't always under, it wasn't under my direction as far as, well, here's the tunes we're going to do. You know, from time to time over the years, I made, uh, I would give significant input to like, hey, here's an instrument, here's a tune we could do. For example, it's a Louis Armstrong classic called I'm Not Rough, which we covered on Monkey Island. Um, it's a great effect, I might add. And uh, it worked like a dream, just as I had imagined it would, you know, to be able to, to be able to take this, what was basically a country blues thing from 1927 and transform it within its, within this piece, you know, within the length of time that this song that we played it, uh, we were able to take it from that 20, 1927 early, early jazz stuff that Louie did to, to take it to 1960s Chicago blues, you know, that it, it, tra it transformed and blasted off in that way. Um, so those are the kind of ideas that I would bring to the Giles band rather than having, um, you know, very primal beginning fundamental input to the songwriting. Songwriting was done by Seth Justman and, um, and Peter Wolf. And the whole band put to, you know, various elements of the the compositions, but basically those songs were written by uh, Wolf and Jossman. Now, Jay was a real blues guitar player. I wonder what he would have made of of Shun. I really don't know. I know it's interesting. He as far as far as I know, he never got an opportunity. Um, as far as I know, he never he didn't hear Shun, didn't know about him. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think he would have recognized that Shun is very talented, whether or not he would have liked what Shun was doing. I don't know. Cause Jay was very much a, um, a classicist almost exclusively. Um, yet in the right, you know, with the right fuse lit behind him, um, Jay was capable of playing, you know, buddy guy, like really intense out there, slow blues stuff. 
such as we had done on a blues time recording called Look How Baby, uh, which was a cover also of um, some Buddy Guy Jr. Well stuff. So Jay, Jay could play intense blues and love playing blues. But later on, he's, his interest waned in that, it seemed to me. And he became exclusively interested in playing uh, classic jazz guitar, a la Charlie Christian and, and Charlie's Disciples. I know you can't, but how do you explain a guy like Schoon? I mean, he reminds me of like, you know, like a Mozart where he he's so young, mm -hmm. but he's still he's so fully formed. And, you know, you in many ways, you know, I remember watching Amadeus and thinking, well, they don't make people like that anymore, but they do. And here's one of them. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. You know, um, Schoon is not a show off um, like like uh, Amadeus. But the thing to understand about Shun is that he, when when Shun was about seven, eight, nine years old, I think it was, he was he was um, studying gymnastics and thought that he was probably going to become a gymnast. Now, Jim, uh, excuse me, Jim, Shun is dyslexic, and this is not private information that I'm telling you from me. He talks about this in public. Um, he's pretty dyslexic. And uh, so he had difficulties in school. But not because he wasn't brilliant. You know, when I'm from the moment I met Shun, every communication I've had with him, this guy is brilliant. He's just, like I said, he's kind of a musical genius to me. I don't think he thinks that of himself. And, um, and certainly in the context of many other guitarists that he has turned me on to, that he is motivated by, you know, you begin to get a realistic picture of how does Shun fit into this whole picture of the whole realm. You know, there's a lot of great guitar players out there, a lot of great jazz players, a lot of, you know, in every band. There's just, and Shun would always tell me, he said, oh, there's always somebody better. And he was saying that in regard to no matter what you play, there's always somebody better. You may not even know yet, but there's always somebody better. And that's kind of a, that's a brilliant thing to say from a guy who's so talented to shun, you know, it's a, it's a recognition of the facts, you know, and that, and that shun, the thing to understand about shun also is, he works incredibly hard at what he does. This guy, he practices like all the time, which I love, you know, because the, the idea that, you know, all the horn players that I studied who have been a huge influence on me, all the great jazz uh, horn players. You know, let's, uh, let me start with, say, Coltrane and work back. You know, you got, you got John Coltrane, you, you, you've got Dexter Gordon, you've got you know, you keep going back and back and back. I'm better actually at, at rattling off the trumpet players because I'm a trumpet player myself and um, have been hugely influenced by all the great jazz horn players, whether trumpet or saxophone. You know, Louis Armstrong, Roy Eldridge, Dizzy Gillespie, Fats Navarro, Miles Davis. These are, these are players that mean a lot to me. You know, 
and maybe a surprise to a lot of people. You know, they a lot of people might say, "Oh, you must study, you know, spend all your time studying harmonica players." Well, no, I don't. But but Little Walter and both Sonny Boy Williamson's are primary influences on my harmonica playing. But those guys were influenced in what they do by the jazz players I'm talking about. You know, jazz and blues. So I feel that I'm on the right track by studying the way that I do, by learning from the great horn players, and um, I continue to take that approach. With a lot of input from Shun as far as, okay, Shun, like, you spent a lot of time playing scales, for example, doing various things with this, that, the other things you've learned at, at, um, at, at Berkeley College of Music or things that you've actually figured out for yourself. And he shares all this stuff with me. So I have a great person to, you know, help me study all this stuff at the level that I want to do now. This is a more intense uh, creative endeavor that, that, that I'm working on with Shun now. With the Giles Band, the harp, you know, like working in the studio and making recordings was kind of like making a movie, you know, and the harp was always treated more like, uh, especially with the harp solos, the harp was always treated more like icing on the cake. You know, it would be the last thing that you'd put on. With Shun, the, 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 I am responsible from the very beginning, from the inception of what we're going to try to do to every element involved with it. So the level of my involvement in the duo is, is much higher than, than with the Giles band. So what you're doing is right. It's more it's more foundation. What you're doing is more foundational than what you're doing then. Yeah, in other words, I'm starting from a place now that could lead and go anywhere musically. Whereas with the Giles Band, um, the songs that we would do or the sound that we would be putting forth, you know, the whole the whole band identity. Um, was defined in a different way. What I'm doing with Shun is completely open-ended. We can do anything we want. When you were younger, did you self-identify as a musician, as being a musician young? Like, when did that? When did your identity as a musician, do you feel, get fully formed? Hey, that's a great question. Um, I've often wondered it myself. I'll tell you the facts. I always loved music. It was always, uh, I think, in my awareness. But at nine years old in third grade is when I started to play trumpet. And that was, that was something I wanted to do. I chose that instrument. I, had an, I have an older brother who's four years older than me named Steve. And Steve was playing clarinet. So he had about four years on me, you know, um, of playing an instrument. And we used to play some, some duets together. But I was be, really being pushed by my family. You know, there were uh, expectations of scholastic endeavors. And, you know, I, I had put forth that I wanted to be um, 
a scientist. I think that's what I, I became very aware of a keen interest in science in, in third grade. And I thought, well, maybe that's what I'll be. I'll be, I'll be a scientist, you know. And I have maintained this interest in science um, ever since then. I have a deep interest in it. And, and uh, both Sean and I are deeply interested in cosmology, you know, which is the study of everything in the universe. And we'll spend... I mean, this isn't just like he likes it and I like it. No, we, we actually like get into it, you know. But to further answer, to try to further answer your question, um, so I was putting forth to everybody around me that that I was interested in science. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And um, But I also loved painting. I did some painting and... Um, Almost, uh, you know, several times a week I would go to a museum school uh, where I grew up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And I, I hung out at that museum quite a bit and um, took some painting classes, which I really enjoyed. And I took um, trumpet lessons uh, once a week, every week, for several years. But I don't think I ever made really, really great progress. I was always trying to, uh, I learned how to read, um, uh, read music for the trumpet. But um, I was more interested in trying to play stuff by ear. You know, I was, try I was always trying to pl play along to uh, jazz recordings that I had been collecting. And I'd play a little bit to them and wouldn't get very, really far because I had never done all the work to learn to play the horn in every key with equal facility. And that's something that as a jazz player you need to do. And I never I never brought the discipline to it to really, okay, let's get down to it and do that. You know. Because I believe if I had, I would have been able to play much more by ear rather than just kind of running up against a wall where, well, I can't can't go further. You know? So, to try to, uh, trying to answer this question about what did I think I wanted to be, you know, I finished high school, went off to Worcester Polytechnic Institute, which um, is a, a an undergraduate and graduate small Ivy League kind of uh, engineering and science school. You know, you can get you know, undergraduate degrees, master's degree, PhD. I wanted to do all that. That wasn't until I got there. <laughs> Once I got there, <laughs> the the workload, the, the workload to carry what was then called eighteen credit hours worth of that was that's like studying five or six subjects at once. Right. That's what the normal workload was. If if you know if you were going to graduate in four years. You had to cover all these courses, and um, it was extremely demanding from a, a study and homework point of view. And uh, I knew after a, a year there that I was going to have a lot of trouble doing that, and that maybe that's not ultimately what I was really interested in. And I got to a point where I had to face the fact that, that um, actually I wanted to be an artist more than I wanted to be a scientist.
And by artist, I meant musical artist. And it was at that point that I I fell into the harp playing. And um, I was very fortunate to have done that because that changed my life completely. From the moment that I from the moment that I first picked up the harp until this moment, I have had a single minded purpose. And that is to be an artist on this particular instrument. Now I dally in other instruments from time to time. You know, like I said, I studied the trumpet. I still love the trumpet. The trumpet provides a type of sonic conception um, to my approach on the harp. As it did, I think, for people, you know, for players like Little Walter, for example. Um, Sonny Boy Williamson, too. Um, so I went through this transformation of, um, of thinking that I would be a scientist or an engineer to realizing, no, that's not going to be it for me. I want to be an artist. And at that point, I quit school, uh, you know, quit college, I mean. And um, and that's when I met, serendipitously, uh, that's when I met um, Jay Giles, Danny Klein. The three of us, we formed a, we met at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And we formed a, a, a jug band, actually, an acoustic group. We were playing blues. But we only did that for about a year when we met up with... Um, I'm condensing the story down in terms of a time frame, but but uh, when we met up with, um, we moved from Worcester to uh, to Boston, and and met Peter Wolf and Stephen Joe Blad, and then about it, within a year of that, Seth Justman came along into our lives, and um, and the band was fully formed. Your you chose the creative life, and you know a lot of times if you, if you say to your parents, "I'm going to be an actor like Marlon Brando," or "I'm going to be a musician like <laughs> Bob Dylan," but you said, "I'm, I'm going to play harmonica like," and they must have gone like who? <laughs> like in other words, was it what did it feel like a big risk to them, or were they supportive? My mother was in tears. <laughs> My dad, uh, I'm not sure what he really thought. But ultimately, they they always supported me in what I wanted to do. But as as I'm sure you can relate to, to um, you know, to have been a, uh, I was never a troublemaking kind of kid. You know, I always did what I was told to do, and um, I obeyed my parents, and uh, they were extremely supportive of me. God bless them. I miss them, and. Uh, so, yeah, at first it was a shock, you know, to, uh, you, t- you know, <laughs> was that thing they used to do on Saturday Night Live long ago? I think you're going to leave the show to, to play rhythm and blues. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it was, a bit, you know, that's what, that's what I think of when I, uh, when I think of this, Dead. but you know, that all changed because, uh, once, once my parents started to, to, uh, come to our shows, they saw a few shows before we even did our first, uh, album. 
And, um, of course, back then we were playing very, very funky venues. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, my mother was just heartbroken about all that. But you know what? It didn't take too long by about um, perhaps the second or third album. We're talking about 1973, 72, 73, and the Giles Band was becoming more and more popular. You know, we were making records on Atlantic Records, etc. They completely turned around in terms of, um, we're talking about my parents, they completely turned, turned around in terms of they loved what the band was doing. They loved the band. They had come to some of the big shows we did. They were just blown away. So, you know, all of that early reaction to my wanting to do that changed, you know. They accepted it and realized that I was really doing the right thing. Did you ever have any doubts, even early on, where you said, maybe I'll be a funky scientist just to be safe, or did you say, I'm going to lean into this 100%, this is the right thing no matter what happens? Well, at the time I made the decision to do that, I was full of doubts and wasn't really all that good on the harp. I mean, I'd only been playing for uh, a year. And, uh, you know, looking back on that, you know, when you've only been playing for a year or two, and you're really into it, you might think you're pretty good, you know? Right. Or you're on your way, you know? But but that's just that's just kind of the mind fooling oneself. You know what I mean? Because, well, you're doing it, and you have to rationalize what you're doing. So you kind of have this feeling of like, oh, I may not be where I want to go to, you know, or where I'm headed, but I'm, but I'm working toward it. And I'm on the right path. And it felt like the right thing to do for me, that this is what I was cut out to do. This is what I was made to do. It's almost like a fatal, fatalistic thing about it, which I totally accepted. But now, I have, I have been focusing like a microscope on my technique for the past five years or so. And I made a decision to fix everything that I don't like about my heart playing, everything I don't like about the way it sounds, which means really exploring intensively um, the technique you're using to play the instrument. So I've gone from, in the Giles Band days, you know, go out on stage, on stage and just kill, you know, I've gone from that feeling of like, here I am in my special role, you know, doing my thing. The band is fully supportive of what I'm doing. The audience loves it, all of this, you know. And I was very, uh, I was comfortable in that role. Now, my attitude about my playing has very much changed. I'm highly critical of it. I'm working toward fixing things I don't like, which involves all my time and attention. And uh, to take these corrective measures, one must be, you have to be really, really persistent. And continue, I continue to study my idols even more uh, closely than before. 
And I'm very thankful that almost on a daily basis, as I work on this stuff, almost on a daily basis, I receive two or three epiphanies a day. Wow. How great is that? <laughs> That's I pretty mean, great. You know, it, it's like, <laughs> it's like you, you've heard the expression, seek and ye shall find. Yeah. Um, you know, and all these other things that are biblically and older than, you know, biblically old, older than that. Um, that's what my life is like. It, it's just like, okay, I'm going to really get into this little one, like, how am I attacking this particular note? Why don't I like this little two-note phrase? You know, what is there about it? I'm examining it more closely than ever before. And this is the key to getting better and, and learning new things, is you, ha you have to identify weaknesses in your playing and fix them. If you don't hear what's wrong with it, then you're just doing the same crap over and over again, even if you're practicing. You know, practicing what you already can do isn't good practicing. You need to practice on what you're weak at. I'm a writer, and I know that when I self-diagnose the way you're talking about, I beat myself up for things that I can do that are that come too easy. So it feels like yeah. you know, I go, oh, that's I'm just doing that thing again because I know I can do it because it's easy. So when yeah. you write, so when you feel like you're doing something, right, right, and you know that you're just mailing it in, right? You know, that's uh, that's you know, it's, it's a thing that I do. So when you do that self-diagnosis, what's the trick to to being effective in that way. You have to be very brutally honest with yourself, right? That's it. That's exactly it. Let me take it from there. <laughs> okay. That's exactly it. <laughs> you, you have to be willing to, and this is the key to it, you have to, as an artist, assuming you're not just, you're not just starting, you know, you're not just beginning. I'm talking about an artist who's been around a long time. As an artist, you have to be, you have to dispense with all the praise you ever received. And I get tons of it. You have to dispense with all the praise. You have to dispense with all the criticism. You have to, you have to get to a point of neutrality so that the observations you make about what you're currently doing are accurate. They won't be accurate unless you dispense with these preconceived notions that you've received from praise and from criticism. Does that make any sense? It does. And that gives you the editorial distance that you need to make the to diagnose and make those changes. Yeah. You have to you have to get away from thinking you're great. You have to get away from thinking that you suck. You have to deal. You have to deal with what you actually do. This this is why this is why when I made this decision to get out the microscope and really examine what I don't like, I found that I I couldn't even I wasn't even realizing all the elements that I don't like because I wasn't looking closely enough. And I'm a person who looks really close, who listens really close. What I'm trying to say is, is that what you hear when you listen really close is dependent upon the attitude you're bringing to it. I see. To be objective about what you hear, to really hear what's there. 
that being said, do you feel now that you are stronger as a player than you've ever been? Yeah. Yeah, but I'm also much more afraid than I used to be. Because because the more you're the, because the more you're aware of your weaknesses, and that you're bringing those weaknesses out on, you know, into your performance, then you have to accept the fact that, okay, this is music is always a work in progress. This is not like something that you just absolutely nail and that, okay, you got it forever. It just doesn't work that way. You're never the same from day to day. So much depends on how much concentration you bring in the moment that you're doing it and the attitude you have when you do it. <laughs> when Shun and I do gigs, I'm pretty much full of fear. I've talked about this before, that for me, I don't think it's this way for Shun. Shun doesn't experience this kind of nervousness and fear because he plays one instrument, <laughs> you know? <laughs> The harmonica is a complicated affair, you know, because I play diatonic harmonicas and I play slide chromatic harmonicas. And sometimes I play this huge chord harmonica, which is a lot of fun to do too. Most people haven't seen or know about that. But that was something that that great group, the trio, harmonica trio called the Harmonicats, um, led by one of the greatest chromatic players of all time, in my opinion, his name was... Um, uh, Jerry Muran. Uh, they're a great source of in inspiration to me. I remember one day I, I played uh, Harmonicats. There's a YouTube of the Harmonicats, uh, old black and white thing of the Harmonicats on the Jack Parr show. This was probably from the late 50s, early 60s. And Shun had never heard, didn't know about the Harmonicats. And I, sh I showed him this. and He just like freaked out. He like got so close to the screen that he wanted to just like dive in to the phone. He just couldn't believe what he was seeing and hearing. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, of course, full of joy, and, you know, telling, yeah, well, I met these guys back in 19, you know, 71. And Jerry Murad was really great to me. Uh, just kind of took me under his wing and shared a lot of information with me. So this thing of constantly striving to get better, technically speaking, this is something that Shun and I both do on an individual basis. Um, Shun is constantly working on his technique. And he does that because he's, he's trying to play so much music. He's trying to get so much to come out of his guitar that you as the listener aren't even aware that yeah, Shun, Shun's playing. You think, oh man, he's playing the bass line too. But he may only play the bass line for a couple of measures. Part of it might drop out for, you know, a moment or two then it comes back in, you know. But while he dropped playing the bass line he was doing some other element that slipped in, you know, put it, he put in there. All of which works together in this amazing way. It's like you shake your head and go, damn. How does he do all that? You know, did, does his work so, ethic did, he, did his work ethic inspire you? Oh, it's tremendously inspiring to me. 
and he claims that my work ethic is very inspiring to him. Wow. Yeah, Shun, we just love what each of us do and how, how we, you know, bring what we're doing to the duo. In and the... we can get very excited, like, when we're working on something that, you know, suddenly, like, a measure of something will pop out that came together in an amazing way. Like, whoa. Yeah. Sometimes you might even have to stop, you know. It's like, wow. <laughs> it was really cool. And it might have been completely accidental. Then we'll figure out why it was so cool. Do you guys uh, practice together quite a bit? Not that much, actually. Um, we do get together um, from time to time. Shun lives in New York City now. He oh. lives in uh, Queens. Um, that's only been about um, nine months or so. Um, before that, he, he, he lived here in Boston for about three and a half, four years since I met him, but he's now in Queens. So we get together somewhat less, but we also get together, uh, like FaceTime, you know, using our, our devices, uh, which is great, you know, uh, cause of the, the high fidelity associated with FaceTime calls. We can, um, we can work together sometimes that way. My my instinct was, and this probably goes back to my days with the Jay Giles band, of like we would rehearse a tremendous amount in the Jay Giles band. Once we got together to rehearse, it was like several times a week. Like this would be rehearsing, say, for a tour. It'd be several times a week or rehearsing for new material for a, an album. We'd get together several times a week and uh, the band would go over these grooves, you know, till they were like to the point of like machine-like swing and precision, you know. It's different with the duo because what's really important with the duo is to keep everything that we're doing fresh. And the way to one of the ways to keep it fresh is to not get together just before doing a gig. That's interesting. You know, to have it be, it's it's much more likely to to have elements of spontaneity uh, if we don't get together and you know and go over, say the night before we're going to do a gig. Does that surprise you? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I'm you know, I'm a tennis player, so it's like you know, I remember playing in college. We practiced every single day together. Um, so yeah, it does it yeah. does surprise me because it sort of goes against what I always thought was the way things were supposed to go. Well, I don't know that there's such a thing as the way things are supposed to go. <laughs> there you go. Because each situation, <laughs> because each situation is different. With the music that Sean and I play, it is so demanding of each one of us that, for like for me, for example, and for him. It is better for us to be doing um, the work involved with those elements by ourselves than to rely on getting together and hoping that us playing together is going to take care of um, the precision of our own parts. I find, for, uh, particularly for me, and I think Shun feels the same way, it's like 
we need this time to to develop our our own skills in handling the, you know this material what we do when we actually get together and perform it that's when we're bringing the best that we can to that moment because we have each worked on our on our stuff individually if we just got together and just went over our show that kind of takes the edge off of off of the show he and I getting together uh, you know to go over stuff to go over these tunes isn't going isn't going to improve my performance of it ah I need all the time that I all the all the time to to focus on my own playing of my the elements that I bring into what we're doing and the same for Sean In, in, how, I mean, that's how demanding it is. That's how demanding it is, from a technical point of view. Yeah. To, to pull off this stuff, so it's better to be more on top of the various elements that that each one of us are trying to do, rather than just hack our way through uh, a rehearsal. I, you know, I imagine the live show must be a blast to watch as an audience member. Yeah, they seem to think so. They seem to think so. You, you know, for you, um, in the rock and roll paradigm, who were the the heart players that you admired or that you or that you liked? Even those who were contemporary to you, who did you think was getting the job done? Because you know, ultimately, I grew up in the '80s, and you were the only harmonica player I remember. I'm 47 now, yeah. and, and you're the only guy I remember. I remember. I saw Billy Joel do it a couple times. I think Peter Wolf even did it a couple times on his solo tours. But who who were the guys that you that was it Dylan? Like who did you like? Dylan's a special case. Um, I really like, I still like Bob Dylan's playing from the '60s. You know, like Highway 61 revisited. Those sorts of. Um, uh, uh, that early material that Dylan was doing was absolutely genius and brilliant. And I am not one of these people who who disses Dylan's um, diatonic harmonic play. You know, I, I feel that he he came forth with a unique style of playing, kind of the opposite of what most other players were doing. You know, most players were playing what's called cross harp where the emphasis is on the draws. <clears throat> Dylan turns it around and, and uh, he was playing what many people call straight harp or blow harp. So he would be playing like a B-flat harmonica in the key of B-flat. Whereas the blues guys would be playing a B-flat harmonica in the key of F, which is cross harp. It has a different sort of approach, feel, you know, it's much bluesier. But Dylan's way of accompanying himself on the harp, you know, the combination of his singing, the songwriting, the, you know, from the moment he starts the song, he's like this, uh, as, as, as Allen Ginsberg is pointing out, he's like this incredible column of, column of air <sighs> that just doesn't let up, whether he's singing or playing the harp. And um, so I, I personally feel that Dylan was brilliant. Um, but to, to try to answer your question more completely about 
you know, who were the players that turned me on back in my early days. You know, a very early there were two very early influences when I had only been playing about a year. I mean, I started off really liking Sonny Terry, and that was more in a country blues context, you know, what's called Piedmont style. But within a in less than a year of of uh, being exposed to Sonny Terry's playing, that's when I heard. Um, Best of Muddy Waters, which had Little Walter on almost all the songs, and it was that it was that Chicago blues approach that really made a huge impression on me. And you know, so the early players, you know, Paul Butterfield was a was a a very early influence. Uh, so was Charlie Musselwhite. Uh, but I would be totally remiss to, you know, not mention, you know, um, James Cotton, Junior ah. Wells, um, both Sonny Boy Williamson's. I mean, these are the guys that influenced me way more than um, Butterfield or Muscle White. You know? It's just that Butterfield and Muscle White were early on in terms of my exposure. Uh, so... As far as other players who were playing around at the time, about the only one of the few others that comes to mind is Lee Oscar, who had a bit of a similar role in the band War as I had in the Giles band. But with Lee, almost all of Lee's playing with with War, a lot of it, a lot of it was unison lines or harmony played with the saxophone player whereas with me my lines stood on their own by themselves they you know I didn't play lines with a sax player so I got used to Lee Oscar being around you know and hearing hearing his approach and um there weren't that very many others although if you were to ask me well what about so-and-so I'm sure there's tons I'm forgetting you know but I I became I began to realize that you know I had kind of a unique thing going where I was taking my influences from all the uh, blues harp players and applying it to rock and roll right rock rock and rock and roll and um, I found ways to transplant those sounds into the context of a rock band and um, I did it in a unique way. Yeah, and that was it was a completely there weren't a lot of people where you could look around and go a lot of guys are doing what I'm doing. There there weren't uh, hardly any, which makes it extraordinary. Before I let you go, I I want to ask you if you a lot of people who listen to this program, they are musicians and a lot of them yeah. are are on the way up. What advice would you give uh, a young musician? That's a great question. Uh My advice would be along the lines of what I was talking about, that to examine your development on a daily or weekly basis, dispense with praise, dispense with criticism, and form your own opinion about what you need to work on and how you sound. You really need to form your own 
conception and your own opinion about where it's at. And if you're honest about it, that's that's when you'll grow the most. You know? And I think it's good to, I think emulating other players that you like is a good way to start, but it's not sufficient. You know, to, to be the best that you can be I mean, I would give the same advice to anybody who wanted to excel at anything. You actually really need to commit your life to it and direct your attention to it a lot. And you cannot let you cannot let any sort of perceived failures get you down. Because every every everything that you fail at is a learning a learning thing. In other words, you don't really experience um, growth until you fail because it's it's in failing it's the failures that show you what you might need to fix to, co- to correct it if you're lucky enough to do it great you know from the moment you start that's highly unlikely you know everybody's going to suck on this instrument you know until you get to a certain point where you don't but you know how how fast you're going to grow at it. What's going to happen? Um, I think my advice is, you know what? It's really up to you. That's what that's what everybody who plays an instrument needs to realize, is that they are making their own movie. You're a player in your own movie, and you're directing it, and you're responsible for it. And the key to happiness is, to me, is to taking this approach. Because you're not going to be happy deceiving yourself into thinking that, hey, you're great, when you're not. The only way to get great is to examine why you're not great. And the only way to get to, to really see the truth about it is to, is to dispense with opinions about yourself. You have to clear the path to do the work. We end the podcast on some very wise words from Magic Dick. Clear the path and do the work. My yoga teacher doesn't even say things like that. Uh, Magic Dick, excellent. If you want to know information about Magic, where he's playing, what he's doing, magicdick.com will get the job done for you. Uh, If you're interested in subscribing to Stereo Embers, the podcast, go to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, why not subscribe to our radio station, Bombshell Radio? There you go. Two subscriptions. One trip to iTunes. Uh, The digital age is so fun. Uh, I am Alex Green. Thank you for listening to the program. I appreciate you being here every week. As long as you're here, I'm going to be here. How about that? Uh, Next week, Steve Barton from Translator. And upcoming episodes will find me chatting with the likes of James Williamson from The Stooges, Petra Hayden, and Roger Manning Jr. of Jellyfish. And uh, here's a little uh, inside scoop. We are in negotiations to talk to the Manic Street Preachers. 
So that could happen. It also might not happen, but let's hope that it does because I've wanted to chat to those guys for a very long time. Uh, That's it for today's program. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you being a fan of Stereo Embers, the podcast. I appreciate you listening to Bombshell Radio, and I appreciate you being you. Until next time, this has been Alex Green on Stereo Embers, the podcast.